Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here flying solo this week. Before we get into any college football talk, I just want to, first of all, apologize to all of you listeners out there who may have been wondering where the Saturday Blitz Podcast has been the past few weeks. We've been experiencing some technical difficulties. Um, unfortunately, John is still not able to be here with me this week. But um, if you know all indications uh, seem to show that he'll be able to be here again with us next week. So, so hang tight. We'll be able to hear from him down there in Alabama really soon. But you know, this week I. I, I wanted to make sure that we're, you know, now that we're back in pocket, we're able to talk a bit and, you know, get you something out there. So this week, we're going to talk about a few things. First of all, in the wake of that crazy Coastal Carolina BYU game, I want to talk about what the national championship narratives actually mean. And then in our second segment after the break, we have a special treat. We're going to have on new site co expert chris peterson with an o not with an e uh as the former boise state and washington football coach but chris peterson uh, our new expert will be on to uh talk a bit introduce himself to the readers and listeners out there and then in the final segment we're just going to have a discussion about what's going on with games we're not even going to pick games we're just going to talk about things like you know, the cancellations that have been going on recently. So let's get into this for a segment. So we had, you know, there's a couple of things to unpack out of Coastal Carolina and BYU pointed at down to the wire thriller last week. And, you know, first of all, it's that the way we go about scheduling in college football, this idea that games must be scheduled out 5, 6, 10, 12 Sometimes, you know, is, yeah, as many as 10 or 12 years ahead of time. This doesn't need to be the norm in college football. We don't need to have this. We saw two teams play a perfectly awesome game with, you know, a few days notice and set it up so that they could each play top 20 opponents and have a real chance at making movement in the college football playoff discussion. But the college football playoff discussion is just one piece of the equation. Coming out of this weekend, one interesting development we had was some movement in one of the 13 currently operational official NCAA national championship selectors. Now, that sounds funny, but, you know, in 2017, UCF was able legitimately to claim a national championship because they were named number one by one of those selectors. Specifically in that case, it was Wes Colley's computer, the Colley matrix that spit out the Knights as, as the number one team in the country. And we've seen his computer do that several times over the years, um, both with, you know, a uh, group of five teams in the case of UCF and in, in terms of power five champions that just kind of cut against the grain as well. Colley's at it again. And 
after last week's game, after week 14 was in the books, the Chanticleers of Coastal Carolina were sitting at the top of the heap in the Conway Matrix. Coastal Carolina could still legitimately claim a national championship. And they could be stuck in the same sort of, you know, storyline as previous teams that have claimed a championship or come close to doing so. You know, teams that have had perfect seasons that went unrequited, those sorts of storylines. But, you know, I think about 1984 BYU. Washington, Oklahoma, they didn't want a piece of the Cougars. They could have easily negotiated their way into a different bowl game. If they had said, we want BYU, bowl games would have clamored to make sure that BYU was there and played. They would have paid whatever the Holiday Bowl wanted to get them out of their whack championship obligations. They would have done whatever it took. But Washington and Oklahoma didn't want them. Likewise, you know, BYU experienced a similar thing in 1996 when they went 13-1 and and got shut out of the Bull Lions games. Um, they were shunted over to the Cotton Bowl, which, you know, these days is a New Year's Six game, but held much less prestige in the mid-90s. Um, especially after it, it lost its affiliation with the Southwest Conference um, in that league's demise. So, you know, we look at that situation, and even after the BCS came online, you think about Tulane in 1998, you think about Marshall in, you know, 1999, both of which had perfect seasons but could not crack into the system. Now, since those first BCS busters came online, we've seen, obviously, increased access. But if Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina both run the table, it's going to be the Bearcats that get the nod um, for the Group of Five's automatic bid into a New Year's Six Bowl game. Can Coastal Carolina still get in as an at-large team? They certainly can. And that BYU game certainly bolstered their chances. But even if they get into a New Year's Six game, they're not going to be in sniffing distance of the college football playoff, which over the past six years has been the be-all and end-all for many people in the national championship discussion. The reality is, though, is that well, most systems tend to agree with, you know, what ultimately comes out the other end of the four-team playoff. They don't always do so, and they don't need to do so. You know, the fact that, you know, not only UCF in 2017, but the fact that Alabama had that right in 2016 – um, Notre Dame in 2012, Oklahoma State, who didn't get their chance in 2011. You know, you have Utah who didn't get their chance in 2008. Anderson and Hester's computer, that was also part of the BCS system, tabbed them as the champion. You know, we've seen this happen in 03 when you had three different champions named. You know, not only was LSU the BCS champion, but USC split that and won multiple championships. 
um, or was named the champion by multiple official selectors. And that's the thing to keep in mind is these official selectors are, are what's important in this discussion, not so much just one narrative. College football has always been sloppy in that way. And the national championship narrative has always been mythical in that regard. And this idea that, you know, we can, you know, ostensibly get away from having a mess, you know, the idea that we can find a definitive answer, distilling 130 teams down to only four and saying you are the only four who have made a case to have a chance. It's not even that a team like Coastal Carolina or a team like Cincinnati or even a team like BYU or say Liberty is necessarily going to come out the champion. But the thing is, is if you give them opportunities at some point, one of them will. And until the college football playoff affords that opportunity Every other one of these official selectors, whether it's, you know, the Associated Press or the USA Today coaches poll, um, other human polls from the College Football Researchers Association that have been operating since 1982 or the Grantland Rice Super 16 from the National Football Foundation and the Football Writers Association of America that's really only been around since 2014, um, but has precedence as well. You know, you look at computers that were part of the BCS. All six former BCS computers are still considered official national championship selectors. If they pick a team, that team is well within its rights to claim a national championship in a system that willingly kept the NCAA out of the, you know, out of writing those narratives. And then you have other systems that go back even further. You know, the Dunkel system, the Dunkel index is a mathematical formula that's been picking college football's teams and rating college football's teams since 1929. And it's, you know, the family is still operating it to this day. Multiple generations of Dunkels have run this system and continue to spit out national champions. Right now, most of these computers would have Alabama on top, but not all of them do. Right now, we are sitting in a situation where if the season ended today and, you know, say COVID-19 were to wipe out every last game that we have to play and force the cancellation of the college football playoff and bowl games, force the cancellation of conference championships, say everything just went out of control. Tomorrow, Coastal Carolina would be a national champion in college football. It's an interesting thought. It's something that really shows you that college football has always had this mythical process. I know I've talked about this on the podcast before and more of a historical construct. And uh, we can, you know, highly recommend going back and listening to that as well, because you can see how this is, you know, the same as it ever was. But on that note, keep that thought in mind because, you know, national championship narratives are always really fascinating to think about. 
We'll talk about that some more a little bit down the line in our final segment when we think about what all of the cancellations around this season are actually going to do. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to have on Chris Peterson, our new co-expert at Saturday Blitz, to offer up some of his thoughts as a fan and as a writer. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We have a real treat today. Chris Peterson, who has been the site expert at GBM Wolverine, is also coming over and taking over as one of the co-site experts at Saturday Blitz. So we decided to welcome him onto the podcast today and let you all get to know uh, one of the, the new members of our editorial crew. So great to have you on this week, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Zach. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm a little bummed about Michigan, Ohio State, but besides that, doing really well. I was actually going to ask you about that, given your background with uh, with GBM Wolverine and, you know, your work on on Wolverine sports. Um, what do you think the impact's going to be of that, you know, cancellation, especially given the rumor that swirled around Jim Harbaugh's time in Ann Arbor? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's really just going to kind of put all the focus on him right now. Um, Michigan actually has offered him a three-year extension, you know, that was reported last night. Um, so it's, he does have an offer out there, but it's lower than, it's kind of a lower contract offer than, you know, what he's had before. Even he had, you know, supposedly an offer this summer that they just kind of never got around to agreeing to. So right now the ball's, you know, kind of in his court, um, you know, early signing period, you know, is less than, or is just a little over a week away. So, you know, he, he's got to make a decision soon. And I think this is just going to, you know, kind of ramp up the, the rumor mill, so to speak. Yeah. It, it's going to get crazy over the next week, I'm sure. So, you know, you'll have plenty of work to do wearing both hats. I can, I, I, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But yeah, you know, uh, you know, as a welcome aboard, um, part of what we, you know, like to go into is, you know, what's your background before coming to Saturday Blitz? Obviously, you have the site expert work at GBM Wolverine, but, you know, generally, I'm just curious, what's your, your longer background in, in writing about college football and about sports more broadly? Um, yeah, it's kind of... Uh... You know, I, I just always lo have really loved sports. I've been a crazy sports fan kind of my entire life. And um, when I graduated high school, I wasn't really sure, you know, what I wanted to do. And um, I had gotten a, um, an, it kind of fallen into an internship with my local newspaper. And so I was going to I was going to start out with that. And then um, the, I was going to intern for the sports editor. And so he actually got another job and uh, the person below him got got promoted and then they called me back and just offered me like a full-time job and I had no experience, but you know, I guess I was willing to learn and they kind of knew me. Um, so that's kind of how I got into, you know, writing about sports is kind of the print, you know, journalism world, um, you know, writing about like kind of small 
town college football and um, high school sports, and then uh, just kind of got into um, you know the the online you know world and, and got a chance to you know start at FanSided about five years ago. Um, it was just kind of a you know one of those things that happened, and, and uh, it ended up being you know one of the best moves that I've ever made. And um, so I I do work at a, a newspaper too. Um, I actually live in Montana, strange as it, it might seem. But um, my mom was born you know in Detroit, and so I, I grew up always rooting you know for Michigan, and unfortunately like the Lions and some other teams like that. Um, <laughs> and then I lived I lived in Nebraska for a few years too, so I'm a hardcore uh, Husker fan. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, I'm a sports editor by day at a, at a newspaper and, um, you know, and then I kind of do this also. So it's, my life is basically just watching and, and writing about a lot of sports and, and that's kind of been my passion and sports and writing. Those are the two things that I really, you know, love the most. So it's, it's kind of been a good fit. I totally understand it. I have to ask, where are you, where are you at in Montana? Um, I am live in Helena, Montana. Okay. So because- the, Yep. Uh, I was originally born in Wisconsin, but we moved out to Wyoming when I was five. So I I definitely know Montana as well. Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. It's always a small world like that. But uh, yeah, you know, I I think it is fascinating how, you know, that fanhood kind of develops along the way. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's something we also like to ask people when we're, you know, we have them on as guests here on the podcast. We have a couple of questions we like to throw out, just some questions about people's fanhood. And uh, so I'm just going to put you right on the hot seat. First of all, what is the most satisfying victory you've experienced as a fan? Um, So I... Because I am a co-fan of Michigan, Nebraska, I'm going to give you one of each because I can't. They're pretty equal to me. But one, the first one would be Michigan um, beating Ohio State in 1997 to get to the Rose Bowl. It was the year they won the national championship. Um, it, it's hard for me not to actually choose that Rose Bowl game, but that Ohio State game just you know means um, everything. Obviously, as a Michigan fan, um, Charles Woodson, you know, returned the punt, you know, got the Heisman Trophy. I can remember him, you know, with the the rose, you know, in his mouth after the game. And so that's, you know, I just get goosebumps thinking about that game. Um, and on the Nebraska side of things, so I lived there like 1991 to 95. So just the the real Tom Osborne years when they were really great. But um, the first couple of years, they, you know, they were, they would always lose in the Orange Bowl a lot. They lost to Miami and Florida State a couple of times. And in 1993, they, lost they basically missed a field goal on the last play of the game which cost them the national championship um and it was tommy bowden's um you know first national championship and tom osborne still hadn't won his so the next year they played miami in the orange bowl um and they basically had to beat miami on their home field with warren Sapp and all those guys and they were down 17 to 9 in the fourth quarter and uh, tommy frazier brought them back and they won 24 17 and uh, won the national championship and that that I'll re- remember that game uh, forever as a Cornhusker fan. Yeah, those were both amazing games. I can definitely remember uh not having a rooting interest watching them, but uh, you know, I mean anybody watching those games if you saw them, they're they're kind of inked on your brain forever. 
Yep, I'll never forget like the the '94 game. You know, Corey Schlesinger, the fullback, you know, had a couple of big runs in that one. Um, so you know that that was a really memorable moment, and it was just it was really satisfying that and you wouldn't see that today because obviously we have a much different system for how you win championships and stuff but it was it was really satisfying to be able for nebraska to beat miami it was like you know they were like the last boss and you know that video game that you can never beat and they finally beat them so that made it you know that much sweeter yeah i was gonna say you know it's one of those storylines that goes back more than a decade to when miami first won its national championship and it always felt like the hurricanes were Nebraska's white whale there on the horizon. So I, I can totally understand how that one is just a little bit sweeter. <laughs> I have, you yeah, know, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, as, as sweet as the victories are though, uh, I, I have to do it to you. I also have to ask what the most heartbreaking losses you've endured as a fan are. Yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll, um, I've got two, you know, that come right to mind for me. Um, but for Michigan, it's the 2016 Ohio state game, um, that I believe that they won. I do believe JT Barrett was short. Um, I, you know, and that just, that game changed the course of history. You know, Michigan wins that game. They win the big 10. They're going to the playoff that year, that year, which I'm sure they would have got blown out like Ohio state, but so you wouldn't have that you know, the same monkey on Jim Harbaugh's back that you have right now. He would have his championship. He would have beaten Ohio State, gotten to the playoff. Um, and I just think that Michigan football would be in a much different place right now had they won that game. Um, and then the other one, for me, it's actually, it's one probably not a lot of people think about, but it's the 1996 Big 12 championship game. Mm-hmm. Um, Nebraska, you know, they were trying to go for three in a row and they'd gotten upset in their first game that year and then won like 10 in a row or 11 in a row or whatever. And they were playing an unranked Texas team. And they were like, Nebraska was number two or number three. And basically everything worked out. All the, all the right teams had to lose. And if Nebraska just would have won that game, they would have gotten to the national championship and they could have had a chance to win four in a row. But uh, Texas beat him. There was like a fourth and inches play late in the fourth quarter, and Texas went for it and passed the ball down the field and completed like a sixty-yard pass. And that just first that was just the most shocking loss that I ever, as a fan, have suffered. I just did not believe that Nebraska was going to lose that game until they actually, you know, until they actually did. Yeah, definitely. I I, I think the. The Nebraska one was definitely the more surprising of the two coming into it because, uh, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, that's always a high stakes game. Both teams were really good coming into the game. But yeah, that Nebraska, Texas championship game, that was the first Big 12 championship game, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, it was. Um, And that kind of started the. Yeah, that was and Texas, they they were a bugaboo for Nebraska a couple of times because um, there was another year like 1999 um, when Eric Crouch was a sophomore. They lost one game all year. It was at Texas and they blew like they had, a I think, a 10 point lead in the second half. Um, And then they ended up beating Texas that same year in the Big 12 championship game. And they ended up getting ranked number two. Um, but you know, had they been able to beat Texas that time, they, if they would have gotten to play a uh, Florida state the year that Michael Vick and Virginia tech did. So That's there was a couple right. basically twice that, that Texas beat Nebraska and cost them a chance at the national title. 
heartbreakers. And and it's funny. There's there always seems to be that one team that always kind of grates at, 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 at your rooting interest, you know. And, and sometimes <laughs> it's a it's a direct rival, like in you know, in Ohio State. And sometimes it's those rivals that kind of pop up you know, later in a team's history and, and are kind of contingent on these realignments and, and so much that's really changed in college football just over the past two, three decades. Yeah. Yeah. I agree for sure. Well, let me throw this question out at you. You know, I don't know how many stadiums you've been to, you know, most of my experience is out on, on the West Coast because I'm, I'm, I've only come out here to Pennsylvania in the past year and a half um, or not even a full year and a half yet. But, uh, you know, most of my life's been spent out West, so I know most of those stadiums. But the question I always love to throw out is if you could go to any stadium you haven't visited yet, which one would you want to go to? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a great question. And my answer would be um the rose bowl you know during a rose bowl game and not like a playoff you know but as long as it's on the i guess they played on the on new year's day now not like the old bcs game so um that you know that saturday or that afternoon game at the rose bowl i just think that's you know the best setting in college football you know when the sun's you know kind of starts to set the lights go on um there's a reason why the rose bowl even when it's not you know part of the playoff is still a big game and so that's that's the one place I, w- I would like to go and, and watch that particular game in that stadium. You know, it's amazing. We've asked this question a lot. And if people haven't been there, that seems to be by and large, the number, I mean, it's the cathedral of college football in a lot of ways. So um, amazingly, I have not been there yet. So it's definitely on my top five list <laughs> as well. Yeah. It's, I mean, especially, you know, if you're a, if you're a fan of the big, big 10 or the pac 12, especially, you know, cause that was always, you know, win the big, if you could win the Rose Bowl, that was like the super bowl. You know, if you got a national title, it was like an awesome cherry on top But that, you know, that was never really like, Oh, let's win the national championship that this year. It was more like win the Rose bowl. And then, you know, if you were undefeated, then you probably would get the title too. Yeah. I remember when I was 11 or 12, it would have been, 93 you know my family being from wisconsin all rooted for the badgers and when they finally made it back to the rose bowl and yeah it would have been 93 for the new year's day 94 rose bowl um you know and you know it makes an entire state go crazy especially in you know big 10 country where you're often the only game in town in the state or you're only one of two you know in the case of states like michigan yeah, it's you know it's pretty wild how many how many uh, you know Rose Bowls that the Badgers have won you know over the last you know two decades compared to you know their previous yeah. history for that. I, and I remember that one they played uh, UCLA with JT Stokes and those guys, and so that was that was a good win for the Big Ten. Oh yeah, I was in uh, I was in middle school at the time, and I remember there were a couple of UCLA fans at the school that I would job with back and forth, and it was so refreshing getting to come in on you know the first day of classes after winter break and just being able to rub it in. So that's what, that's what football allows us to do sometimes. Yep. <laughs> well, one last question I'd love to ask you before I uh, let you go today is um, 
you know, kind of thinking historically, and, you know, it very well might be a Rose Bowl game, but if you could go back in time to see one historic bowl game, which one would you go to and why would you choose it? Um, you know, this one's really hard, but I think, um, you know, when I was looking at this question, um, I think I go back to, you know, like the 1984 orange bowl, just, you know, not as like a Nebraska fan, but just a really, you know, monumental game in college football history. Um, and just a, a monumental moment, the game where, you know, it was, it was, uh, Miami was up 31, 24 Nebraska you know, scores a touchdown and they were undefeated, they could have kicked a field goal or they could have kicked the PAT and more than, you know, most likely would have still been voted as national champion. But, you know, Tom Osborne and his team, they didn't want to tie to be national champion. They wanted to win the national championship. So they went for two and didn't get it. And that, you know, kind of started the, the, the Miami, you know, dynasty era. And uh, it would, it would be another 10 years before, you know, Tom Osborne would get his revenge. But I think, you know, if I was a fan is to, to see one of the most, you know, significant games, I think that would be, you know, one on my list for sure. It's funny that you actually chose a game where your team lost. Cause I said, um, when John and I did this in our very first, one of our first few podcasts, we went into this question with the two of us. And I actually picked, what was it, the 1962 or the 1963 Rose Bowl, the um, USC-Wisconsin Rose Bowl, where it was the first time number one versus number two had been matched up in a bowl game. And, uh, you know, Wisconsin ultimately lost, but just to have a you know, just a barn burner like that. I, I, I'd totally be all in to get a historic game like that. Even if you don't come out just, you know, excited for your team's result. Yeah. Just the, yeah. And there's, you know, there's been a lot of really historic games and you know, the, the thing about it is there hasn't been a ton of those games that, you know, you have the one versus two or you have the crazy finish like that. And so that's, that's another thing I think that makes it really compelling. I love it. I really love that choice. Well, before, you know, we go, is there any last, you know, words you want to throw out there or anything you want to say to the listeners about, you know, what you hope to bring to Saturday Blitz with your, uh, with your start as, as one of the, the co-experts at the site? Um, you know, I think that, um, I'm just going to try to bring, you know, a lot of passion and, um, you know, a lot of analysis and, and kind of, you know, knowledge. I mean, I've watched a lot of college football over the years. Um, and it's, it's just, a, it's a really fun thing. And I think that the great thing about it is it's a, um, you know, it's like a week to week thing and it so much changes from, you know, every week. And, and, uh, I, I just like to, you know, have the ability to kind of get, you know, my perspective out there. And, and I think, what I hope to come across, and I think the site has already done a really great job, so I don't think it's, you know, there, there's much that I have to add to it, but just, just trying to, you know, add even more to the conversation and, you know, hopefully, you know, add some new perspectives out there for people. Awesome. I totally love it. Well, thank you so much again for coming on with us today, Chris. And, uh, you know, I, I look forward to talking with you again in the future. Um, whether it's here on the podcast or just, you know, behind the scenes as we're working for, for the site. So you have a wonderful rest of your day and uh, the rest of you out there listening, we will be right back after this break to talk more college football here on the Saturday Blitz podcast. Stay tuned.
welcome back for our final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with uh, Chris in the previous segment. We now have our most recent set of college football playoff rankings in as of Tuesday night. And I want to talk about those a bit in this final segment because there are some interesting things that we need to consider. First of all, we saw Cincinnati drop a spot despite not losing a game as they went, uh, were unable to play, but they are 8-0 and fell behind Iowa State, a two-loss Iowa State team. Now, you know, you can parse this a couple of different ways. First of all, you know, Iowa State has a couple of top 25 wins. They also have a couple of top 25 losses. Cincinnati has zero top 25 wins, but they also have no losses whatsoever. So it's kind of a wash. The college football playoff selection committee obviously decided that the Big 12 branding gave Iowa State the edge here is, is the way it really seemed to kind kind of play out. And it, it was uh, definitely eye-opening. I think it's something we really need to consider as very eye-opening. But, you know, the top four, they stayed the same. We still have Ohio State. They're sitting at number four, Texas A&M, you know, just kind of lagging right behind them. One thing that often gets bandied about, and it's a really interesting thing to consider this year, is the idea of strength of schedule. Now, normally in a season, strength of schedule is calculated by any number of computers, and that's no exception this year. But it becomes an even harder thing to calculate when you have so few non-conference games, when intersectional contests are effectively not a thing where something like a top 20 matchup between a coastal Carolina and a BYU is often the closest we're going to get to being able to, you know, figure out how these teams match up head to head or, you know, at least having comparables that we can play through. It's a real mess. And honestly, in any given season, you can look at the computers and the way strength of schedule is calculated really depends on how they set the algorithm. You know, you look at a team like Alabama, Sagarin's rankings have them eighth in strength of schedule. Uh, The Congrove computer rankings have them 21st. Billingsley has them at 19th. Kenneth Massey has them at 12th. And then the Kali matrix has them with the 66th best schedule. You see similar things with a team like Notre Dame, where Kali has them massively underrated in strength of schedule. Sagarin and Massey have them right around 67th, 68th. But then Billingsley has them at 30th. It, it, it's really a, a mess across the board. And, it, you know, there is no single way of determining it. 
we could look at the standard deviation between any of these and it's just absolutely off the charts. It, it, it's the kind of mess that you would never want to, you know, get yourself involved with in terms of statistics. It's, it, it's just an absolute mess. So how is the committee actually ranking these teams? How are they judging performance? Uh, becomes a real question. And we've talked about this in the past on the podcast. I'm honestly a sucker for the old BCS way of doing things. And it's not because it was perfect. We've talked about this enough times. The national championship is mythical. And you have 13 different selectors who, you know, who could choose the national championship in any given year. We've, we've talked about that. What the BCS did is it offered something that was transparent and that factored in a lot of these different variables and did, you know, maybe not the best that could possibly be done, but it, it did an honest job of, you know, trying to flatten those out and take the human variables of the polls and combine them with, you know, computer systems that, as we've seen, you know, the strength of schedule rankings we're talking about here prove that you can't say any one computer system is objective because whatever underlying assumptions are used to program the algorithm that spits out those rankings are going to be inherently subjective. What one statistician favors in terms of calculating their strength of schedule is something that may be, you know, given less weight by another statistician. And that's okay. You know, the, the fact is, is there's no one right answer. But what the BCS did is it flattened that out a bit. It said there are going to be spikes in terms of the computer rankings you know, one could wildly overvalue or undervalue a team. We're going to throw those out and then we're going to let the rest of them, you know, have, have an average and weighted against these two human poles. It's something that anyone with Excel or Google Sheets could calculate at home if they wanted to from week to week. If you go on my Twitter account at ZBagalki, you can see I calculate this out every week, just out of curiosity still. And the formulas still hold. Obviously, we don't have the Harris poll anymore. But, you know, the AP top 25 was used at the beginning. You can use that as your stand-in. Even when, you know, one of the computers aren't publishing, like Peter Wolf is this, it hasn't been yet this year. He hasn't been putting out any rankings you can substitute something in like the Congrove computer rankings or the Dunkel system, which are also official NCAA selectors. And, you know, consider that within the equation as well. But you look at this list from the committee that they put out on Tuesday night. And, you know, on one hand, it's really not that surprising. 
I look at, you know, how I had things projected last week. And honestly, you know, the top 10 were fairly clear other than, you know, watching uh, Cincinnati drop a spot behind Iowa State. I think that was the biggest shocker of the bunch for sure. But, you know, at the same time, we've seen teams you know, really take a hit. I think BYU took a bigger hit than some people expected. They basically just flip-flopped Coastal Carolina and BYU in the in their top 25. You look at teams like, you know, it, it, it's interesting. How do we figure out, you know, something like the USC Colorado conundrum? Both of them are 4-0. and And you know, they didn't get the chance to play this year despite being in the same division. And that's really a consequence of issues, you know, outside of the control of anything other than just not playing football, which, you know, the Pac-12 originally made that decision. Um, But through political pressure, through, you know, the, I think, false hope that rapid antigen testing on a daily basis would be some magic bullet that could prevent teams from get, you know, having COVID-19 outbreaks in their locker room. Obviously that, that didn't work. You know, we still see issues happening. USC and Colorado had to, you know, cancel their game against one another because of issues with the Trojans. Colorado made up their game. USC, obviously, you know, did not. But they're both 4-0 and because Colorado has, you know, had teams have other issues with them. So, but if things hold, USC gets that spot. Colorado has been, you know, kind of punished for that in a lot of ways. And we saw the committee you know, only brought them in at 21. What are they going to do in that instance? You know, in a lot of ways, teams are going to get punished this year. It's just what is going to happen. But, we, you know, it, it, it also is a question of who is the committee favoring this year? And I think we can look at a couple of really, you know, just clear things. First of all, the SEC is still king. Alabama came in at number one. Texas A&M and Florida are sitting at five and six. Georgia is at number nine right now, which frankly is somewhat shocking from the standpoint of anything other than that SEC brand next to their name. You have you know, a a team like Missouri that's bringing up the rear at five and three. And they, you know, basically took the spot of Auburn, who was there at at five and three before them. So the SEC is getting real respect. I think we also see the ACC is getting real respect from the committee. You know, Notre Dame and Clemson there at two and three are the obvious ones to think about. But Miami is also a top 10 team. 
North Carolina at 17 as the highest ranked three loss team is, is, is substantial. And then you also have NC State coming in there as well. So they're getting the benefit of the doubt. We also see that happening with the Big 12. You know, Iowa State obviously is the most obvious one that we just brought up at, you know, a 7-2 and two Iowa State team leapfrogging over 8-0 and oh Cincinnati by virtue of their 36-point home victory over West Virginia. We have Oklahoma in there as well, you know, sitting at six and two. They are, you know, ahead of a team like Indiana, which as of right now is on course to play for the Big Ten championship uh, with one fewer loss and only one fewer game played. So that's an, you know, you can't say that schedule at that point is substantially different. In addition to those two Big 12 front runners, Iowa State and Oklahoma, you have, you know, Texas in there, you have Oklahoma State also ranked, uh, even though they have three losses as well. Not necessarily the case that the two conferences that came back late in terms of Power 5 conferences are getting that same benefit of the doubt. You know, USC and Colorado are both ranked this this week out of the Pac-12 South. But nobody from the Pac-12 North is ranked after both Washington and Oregon sustained losses in week 14. They're really just kind of hovering in the ether. You might see whichever one of the two teams wins at Autzen Stadium this weekend jump back in. Uh but at the same time, it, it, it's not a guarantee. I think Washington probably has a better chance at this point, given that they only have one loss. But the committee has not been impressed by the, you know, Pac-12. And it's funny, you think about USC, you know, they've played one fewer game than Ohio State. Same is true of Colorado. It's not like there's a lot of difference there, but the Big Ten has definitely kind of gotten more of that benefit of the doubt with Ohio State, with Indiana, with Northwestern, even Iowa for as long as they've been in there. You know, Wisconsin kind of hovered on the edges until they 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 fell out for what is probably going to be for good. But, you know, we have these different messes and, you know, the, the group of five is going to get lost in the shovel. They always get lost in the shuffle because, frankly, this system is designed to get them lost in the shuffle. It ultimately doesn't matter how good a schedule that these teams play. You know, it, it, it's going to ultimately bite them in the backside in the end. There's, there's just a damn if you do and damn if you don't. That's what the thing about the BCS was. You knew how you were going to be calculated. And yes, the human polls were going to do what the human polls do and, and undervalue most likely. The computers off, offered a chance to flatten that out. And this year, as we've seen, 
with, you know, the Colleen Matrix putting you know, uh, Coastal Carolina at number one, they really do have a chance to flatten that out with it. If the BCS, you know, if we were using the BCS this week versus what the committee was saying, you would see Coastal Carolina a couple of spots higher. You would see Cincinnati a spot higher. You would see teams like Louisiana getting that benefit of the doubt for beating a team like Iowa State that's sitting there at, you know, 12 spots higher than they are, according to the committee, despite having a, an appreciably better win percentage against a schedule that, yes, is is not necessarily as good as Iowa State's. Let's be honest about that. But if you look at the way things average out between these different strength of schedule rankings, it's not like there are a ton of positions separating these teams the way we might consider it. You know, think about, for instance, a team like Cincinnati. They have a strength of schedule that puts them about 78th best in the country. You know, the best team in the top 25 right now is Alabama, and their strength of schedule would put them around 25th best in the country. SEC teams generally get that benefit of the doubt. But like a team like Notre Dame has played the 66th best schedule despite going to the ACC this year or perhaps because they went to the ACC. You know, Oklahoma is right there around the 66th best schedule as well. So, you know, USC is the 74th best schedule. Is that appreciably different than the schedule that Louisiana has played so far? Not really. I mean, when you, when you average it all out, they have basically exactly the same schedule and Louisiana has played two and a half times more games. They're four spots behind USC. So figuring out what the committee is going to do is always a mess. And frankly, this year is messier than most and whatever they spit out I, I think we can look at with more skepticism than we ever have before. And ultimately keep in mind, this is only one of 13 selectors. So whoever does come out of the college football playoff is likely going to be named by most of the systems to, you know, as their national champion, especially the polls at this point, you can pretty much expect every human poll to go that direction. And, you know, as we've seen with the computer rankings, teams near the top are going to get that benefit of the doubt, but a team like coastal Carolina could slip through this year a team like, you know, Cincinnati that's hovering right there at, I, I think it's number three in the Collie rankings. It, you know, they also have that chance to, to step in and just take charge. So, you, you know, Coastal Carolina has that chance. Cincinnati at number three, even Louisiana at number six in the Collie rankings BYU still hovering right behind it, number eight. 
that's the one you want to watch this year. It's the one that gave it to USC in 2017, and it's the one that is most likely to do it again if we are to have the chaos that we justifiably deserve from a strange, ultimately kind of ridiculous 2020 season that given how many games we've seen canceled and postponed from week to week and that we continue to see canceled and postponed again with, you know, Ohio State not playing this weekend, Cincinnati won't be playing again this weekend. Uh, So, yeah, you know, we can't necessarily think that all is well and right and normal in the world but we get exactly what we pretty much deserve out of this. It's exactly what's going to happen. You know, Texas A&M is sidelined as well. And before we are back talking to you again next Wednesday, you know, before games actually happen for week 15 over this second weekend of December, we're likely going to see more cancellations. So steal your nerves for it and, you know, just acknowledge that this season is kind of peeling back the curtain. It's exposing the nuts and bolts of a system that's really just cotton candy and fluff where you expect to find heavy machinery. It's how myths are made. That's how, you know, these narratives, these wacky stories that we tell ourselves get constructed. But on that note, I'm going to leave you with enough babble for for this week's episode. Again, hope you enjoyed our guest this week. Be sure to come back next Wednesday when we have John triumphantly back in the fold. And, uh, you know, hang in there. Do everything you can to keep yourself safe and to keep everyone safe around you because as we get deeper into this holiday season and closer to the end of a strange 2020 season i'd like to be back with you all for 2021 and i'd like to have you all back here so mask up wash those hands stay as isolated as you possibly can i know it's tough especially this time of year but it's worth it in the long run. We all need to do our part. So from the Saturday Blitz podcast, I'm Zach Bogalki. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you next Wednesday.